Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, May 24th, we are studying Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In today's text, the Lamb who was slain, who has now ascended to the throne of God, he begins to open the seals of the scroll. With the first four opened seals come the four horsemen of the apocalypse. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Yeah, good to be back on with you, Tim, and and really good to be on to talk about um, the book of Revelation. That's right, that's right. So, Pastor Appold, give us your general impression of the book. How should we approach this as Christians? Why is it a helpful book? It's a helpful book because uh, it comes at the end, and it's all about the, um, the victory of Christ and the victory of his church. And I think that um, you know, I, I, I've thought about this quite a bit, probably since the year 2020. Um, you know, I think we were all kind of convinced that the world was coming to an end, uh, or at least we had some, um, like, question in our mind, like, what is happening all around us? Um, lots of things that we just took for granted, lots of things that had always been so stable were kind of coming unglued. And um, it's, it's especially in those times that you look in the book of Revelation and you, you hope for some clarity, and then you get more confused, right? <laughs> um, but the, the big picture of the book of Revelation is that um, not only does Christ win, I think that's one way that, that I often hear people say, like the comfort of the book of Revelation is that um, Christ wins, right? And, and that's true. Uh, but I think one of the other things that's very evident as you read the book of Revelation is that he wins through his saints and that the church does emerge victorious through many trials, through many tribulations, through many difficulties, um, but the martyrs are vindicated and, and the saints along with them will be vindicated too. So with that in mind, where have we been in the Re- book of Revelation leading up to chapter 6? What should we know as we prepare to look at this text today? Well, you, you mentioned it. Um, you know, we're in chapter 6, so chapter 5 is right before it. Uh, context is important here. Um, one of the—what's the right word to use, Tim? One of the difficulties in reading Revelation is trying to make sense of kind of the whole, what we might call the narrative arc. You know, how does—are we supposed to see, like, one continuous story— um, or is this the same thing happening kind of over and over and over again, um, what some commentators call sort of the cyclical view? So you, um, you, know, you have the seven seals that are being opened here, and then there's going to be seven trumpets, and then there's going to be seven bowls poured out. And so sometimes people will say that's the, they're describing all the same thing just in a, in a cycle or in a spiral. I'm of the opinion that um, it's not cyclical that way. Um, there is some overlap, to be sure, but I'm of the opinion that there is an overarching story 
here. There is an overarching progression. And so I think it's helpful to see, all right, what has just happened before this? And that can kind of um, establish for us uh, a place in history so that we don't simply take what's described in Revelation and say, is that happening somewhere today? Um, I call that, this is, I, I tell my congregation, we want to avoid newspaper exegesis, right? We don't want to just say, all right, there's some unrest in Ukraine right now. Maybe that's what the third horseman or the fourth, fourth horseman is talking about. Um, I think a much better thing to do is to say, um, all right, John wrote this, and I'm of the opinion that it's the Apostle John, the same author as the epistles of John. Maybe I'm a simpleton here, Tim, you can tell me. Um, the same author as the Gospel of John. I'm also of the opinion that he wrote it, and this may be different than some of the other guests, that he wrote before the destruction of the temple. Um, I know that there's... Um, that a lot of the church history traditions say that John wrote this late in, in the first century. Um, I think he wrote before the temple. But in any case, I, I think seeing it, here's my point, seeing that John is writing um, in the first century, that he has concerns not just about, you know, what's going to happen in the 21st century or in the 35th century, you know, way off in the distant future, but that he also is writing for the things that are about to happen, as Jesus told him, right? Write down these things that are about to happen. Um, and seeing, especially what I'm going to try to do with you today, Tim, I'm going to try to convince you and maybe some of our audience, too, that these four horsemen um, describe the progress of the gospel from the ascension um, through those very early days of the church. And that's where the context is, is helpful uh, Revelation 4 and 5 are kind of this heavenly view, seeing the ascension of Jesus, not from below, which is what you have in the book of Acts and in the book of Luke, but seeing the ascension of Jesus, um, if you will, from the vantage point of heaven. Here comes the Lamb. He ascends to the throne. He's given a book, and now he's going to open that book. And uh, we're not going to get to the actual contents of the book, or the scroll, I should say, um, but we're going to see as he unseals these seals, as he opens the seals, um, I think we're seeing, with John in this apocalypse, we're seeing um, apocalyptic symbols of what happened in the days after the ascension of Jesus. Okay. All right. So you're going to take these things a little more positively than I think most commentators, at least modern commentators, would take them. Generally, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is a term that's used in wider circles in Christianity, yeah, that term is seen as pretty, if the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming, that's bad news. Right, unless you're a Ric Flair fan, which I am, and that I think this is part of why I want to see a positive connotation. <laughs> I, I cheer for the heels, you know, and so Ric Flair and his boys... Um, if, if our listeners don't know, you need to look up WWF history, um, become familiar with the four horsemen of the apocalypse led by Ric Flair, and then that'll help you, Tim. I, I, I can see you doubt me on this, but that will help you see that the four horsemen, yes, they cause upheaval, and um, they're not like comforting, calm figures by any means, but the, the progress of the kingdom of Christ sometimes shakes the world up. And uh, that's, that's kind of my, um, that, that's my basis here for what, how I'm reading this. So in terms of the narrative arc of the book of Revelation, 
our conversation today probably doesn't have time for the whole scope of that. But I do okay. think that what you're saying about the context, especially right now, regardless of you, if, if you're going to take this book as cyclical or not, we are seeing this happen right on the heels of what happened in chapters four and five. And yeah. the ascension of Jesus does factor into these four horsemen, regardless of, of which way you take them. I think that that is an important context, especially since Jesus, again, has just taken the scroll and he's going to open them now. So I think that that does provide key context, regardless of whether you see it cyclical later or not. Yeah. And so that, that kind of sets you up, right? Um, if, okay, if, if I was going to ask you it this way, Tim, um, once Jesus ascends to, the, to, the, to heaven, what should we expect to happen next? You know, if this is if we're talking about first century history, what would we expect to happen next? Well, we'd expect Pentecost, right? And I think that's what we get. There is the the pouring out of the Spirit um, is being seen now. Um, and now, again, remember this is an apocalyptic book, so it's being seen in symbolic figures. But these symbols, um, the symbols correspond with the reality that they symbolize, right? So it's not going to be this far-fetched, um, you know, hard-to-grasp to symbol. It's going to connect somehow with reality. Um, think of the beasts later when you're seeing these beastly kingdoms. Well, it's it's not describing a calm, peaceful empire. It's describing, it's, it's showing you, it's unveiling for you the truth about Rome or the truth about apostate Israel. Um, the millennium, another one, right? Um, a thousand years, that is symbolic of a really long time. Um, and so the, the symbol matches the reality in some way, even though it's not as obvious as like, then fire fell out of heaven and the apostles spoke in all the, the languages of the world, um, which is what we have in the book of Acts. Let's go ahead and read this text and get that out so that we can discuss the images and what John might be talking about here, what he's seeing. So this is Revelation 6, beginning at verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth." That's our text for today. That's Revelation 6, verses 1 to 8. So, Pastor Apple, before we start talking about each of the individual horsemen, maybe give us some background as to places we might consider in the Scriptures 
as to the significance of the fact that there are horsemen at all. Yeah, I think the book of Revel. this is just a, a broad thing. The book of Revelation is kind of the ultimate, do you know your Bible um, qu- test? Because there are things that are that are here that you that you read and you're like, man, I've never heard this before. And then if you have a good concordance, it's helpful. Um, and sometimes, maybe you've had this experience, Tim, um, you read something like four horses. I, I just don't have any connection. And then you're paging through the Old Testament and you realize like, oh, that's where it's from. So um, how well do you know your Old Testament? Um, do you know the book of Zechariah? That's not, our question here. Not well enough. No. Yeah, so that's what you need to do next on Sharper Iron. We got to do Zechariah. Um, in the book of Zechariah, um, Zechariah is a prophet post-exile, right? So the people of Israel have um, gone into Babylon and they've come back and they've begun to rebuild the temple or to build a new temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. 70 years later, they begin the rebuild and then it stalls out. Um, and the people, I don't know if they lost interest. Um, there's some persecution taking place, but they, it stalls out. And Zechariah is one of the prophets who God raises up. Um, Haggai also is very influential. Um, if you read that book, it's maybe a little bit um, more straightforward than Zechariah, which is apocalyptic as well. Um, but in the book of Zechariah, there are these, there are again, four horsemen. And there are horses. And at first in the book, the horses are just out to pasture. They're not riding through the world. So in Zechariah 1, um, these horses of the Lord, um, his angelic you know, horses aren't doing, that. they're just at rest. And that's a problem if you know the historical context because the Lord's power, the Lord's uh, people, which is, uh, I'll read a passage in just a minute, um, but these God's energy should be going out into the world and his people should be rebuilding the temple. And so those horses at first are at rest. Later in the book, I think in chapter six, they actually do ride out into the world. And then in chapter 10, this is kind of, I think, a, a very helpful passage um, to identify, to draw a connection between the horses that ride through the world, God's horses and God's people. Um, if you look in Zechariah 10, I believe it's verses 3 and 4. I'm just flipping there and, uh, and talking as I, as I flip. Here's what it says. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every rule, ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall ride, they shall fight, because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. So God's people are compared to his majestic steed going out into the world. Now in Zechariah's day, the, the task, the mission is build the house of the Lord, right? Um, after the ascension, the horsemen of the Lord, his horses, his people, his majestic steed, are given a new task, right? Go into all the earth, make disciples of all nations, um, you know, proclaim this gospel to the whole empire. Um, and so that's, you know, in my view, and I, you know, I know that there's different, different ways of reading these horses, I think that we should take it this way at least first. Just try this on for an hour here. Um, that the horses 
are the people of the Lord, and that these horsemen are the different are the the different figures or different aspects of Christ riding with his people through the power of the Spirit, which is what is unleashed and and sent on the day of Pentecost. All right. I see you I, gotta know you gotta know Zechariah, which is Well you do have to know Zechariah. And and Zechariah is a challenge all on its own. Agreed. I'm not sure if we're gonna take Zechariah next because we might need a little bit like like you were saying, after you study the book of Revelation and the parish, you need to kind of go back to something like Abraham right. or Matthew, something yep. that everybody knows. So, but I mean, even in Zechariah, the the way the horsemen behave there, I I, I wonder, I, I wonder about some of the ways that that you're suggesting, because the the horsemen that go out in the first chapter, they have patrolled the earth. The earth remains at rest. I again, I don't want to get too too far into the weeds of Zechariah, so that we try to stay here on on Revelation. I do think that the what is very helpful about seeing the horsemen in Zechariah is that they are under the Lord's direction one way or the other. R- mm-hmm. Regardless of if the, the horsemen in Revelation 6, if we're going to take them in the more positive light, as you're suggesting, or in the more negative way as, as elements of destruction, I think in either case to see that they both ride at the Lord's direction, I think is helpful. Because if, if the four horsemen of the apocalypse are more of the figures of, of terror, as they are often presented then to know that none of that happens outside of the Lord's control, I find to be a great comfort, and I think would have been a comfort to those living under persecution in the day of, of John when he's writing Revelation. Yeah, and um, another, another good place to look is within the book of Revelation itself. So at the end of the vision, or towards the end of the vision, it's not the final thing, um, you do have uh, something that I, we can all agree on, uh, Jesus riding on a horse on a white stallion, um, and there he is. He comes to defeat uh, the. I think it's the sea beast, isn't it? Um, he comes to to slaughter um, the opposing, the persecuting forces. So the, you know, that that one in chapter nineteen, I think everyone agrees on right. uh, that it's Jesus. Here in chapter six, it's a little bit. Um, harder to pin down. It's a little harder to be sure and certain. But what you're saying is is right on. R- regardless of who these horses are, they are called out by Jesus. They are unleashed because he opens the seal. So it's under his authority. It's under his power. And whether it is a um, they are sent to do his will, or if they are permitted, you know, to do you know to destroy and to and to conquer, and and these things are not. The, the advance of the kingdom of Jesus in the world, uh, but our destructive forces, um, in any case, they're only permitted to do what he allows them, you know, kind of like like Satan in the book of Job, right? He right. He's given um, a bit of freedom over Job, but the Lord does draw the line and say, you know, but you can't touch him, you can't kill him. Right, and I, I think, again, I, th- I think you see that within the language of this section, how in, in each case, when the seal is opened— one of the living creatures is the one who says, come, which mm-hmm. I've always, I've taken as the living creature is speaking to the horseman riding the horse and telling him to come. You can tell me if you have a, another thought on that. But then in, in almost all the situations, in each case, the rider is, something is given to him, or he is permitted to do something. 
and, and again, I, I would take all of that as a, a, a form of comfort to, to recognize that regardless of what, and again, this is me thinking more along the lines of these, this is the suffering that we endure in this world under these four horsemen. None of that happens outside of the Lord's control. Again, like you were saying, with the way that the Lord allows Satan to do things in the book of Job. Yeah, and um, okay, so take the, take the life of the apostles here as a, as a kind of case in point right? Um, what did they do? Well, they went out, they proclaimed the gospel, and immediately they were persecuted, right? They, they get locked up in jail, um, they get released from jail, um, they get beaten, they rejoice for it, and then um, things kind of cool down for a little while until there's a new wave, right? These persecutions come in waves, and finally um, it gets so severe that uh, who, James is the first apostle who's killed, Stephen's the first martyr, um, but that persecution comes in waves. Um, and yet that persecution, as much as the enemies mean it to stop the gospel, um, Jesus, as the Lord of the church, it, it only serves to further the gospel. And that's the, that's the power of martyrdom that we see throughout the book of Revelation is that the martyrs, even though they seem to be defeated by um, those who persecute them, actually in their martyrdom, they unmask the beast, they expose the, um, you know, the evil for what it is, and the blood of the martyrs, as Tertullian said, one of the church fathers said, becomes the seed of the church, which is, a, I think, a major theme in the book of Revelation, that yeah. um, the way that you conquer is through suffering. So looking at these four horsemen, and, and maybe the way that they, are, they each come out, the seal is opened by the Lamb, each time John hears one of the living creatures say, come, is there anything to that just sort of general introduction as to the way that that happens each four times that the, and the role that the living creatures play here? Well, the, this is heavenly power, right? So the lamb is on the throne, and we saw back in chapter, I don't know if it was four or five, these, who are these living creatures? We've seen them before. They were around the throne, and they never cease praising God day and night. Um, this comes back again, how well do you know your Old Testament, that um, when Ezekiel had his vision of the glory of the Lord, um, you know, the Lord appears in the form of a man, one like a son of man, and he is riding this chariot through the world, and these living creatures are the, um, you know, the horses, so they're the creatures that drag God's chariot um, through the world. And so now it's not, it's not the cherubim anymore who are pulling um, you know, the glory of the Lord through the world. Now it's these horses. And I think that there is something of a um, advancement from the time when the angels were tasked with being God's, um, you know, God's forces that carried him through the world. Now it's, if you, if you take my uh, word for it, or if you take Zechariah's word for it, now it's, it's the human, it's the church, it's the people of God who are his majestic steed, and it's the apostles who are the angelic voices. The apostles are the messengers. The church is the messenger. You have this transition from angel to human. All right. All right. Let's talk about these. <laughs> Let's talk about, I mean, I'm just going to, you know, I, I don't know that you're going to convince me so quickly as, as just, Paul said. Yeah, to... just ride loosely in the saddle with me. Don't, don't right. hold these things too tightly. Um, you got to right. go with it a little bit. So let's let's talk about the first horseman, and of the of the four, 
I think the first one is the one that has caused the most well, controversies, maybe not the right word, but questions as to who this one is, precisely because of what you said earlier about Revelation 19. Yes. And there you have someone riding on a white horse who it's fairly obvious that that is Jesus. Who's yeah, riding he has, on a white horse there. Right. He has the name, the Word of God inscribed right. on his thigh. Yeah. Right. So here you have someone riding on a white horse. But the descriptions and the context is seem to be different enough that there's mm-hmm. been a little more question as to who exactly this is. So for the sake of, of completeness, here's what it says again. John looks, he sees a white horse, its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, all by itself, I could very easily see why someone would identify that with Christ. I mean, you've got the white horse, you've got the crown— and you've got someone conquering. All of yeah. those things fit perfectly with Christ. It's the the surrounding context, I think, that starts to cause some questions for folks. Yeah, well, this is um, easily answered, Tim. Good question. Of course. The, the surrounding context is what has immediately preceded the ascension of Jesus. So he ascends to the throne on heaven, um, but remember what he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the kingdom must... Um, this is like what we say, um, you know, now and not yet, right? So now Jesus Jesus is risen, Jesus is ascended, Jesus sits on the throne, but we don't see that fully. And so there is a time and a place for the church. This is why the church has a mission. Um, our mission is to extend that kingdom, to pray, thy kingdom come, and then through the um, preaching of the word, through the work of evangelization, um, that's what I would say is happen is being seen here. Is this is how does Christ conquer? Well, he conquers um, through the work of his through the work of his church, um, conquering and to conquer. So every every piece that he takes is the springboard for something further. Um, think of the way that the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans. You know, he says, "I I hope to come to you so that I may, you know." Um, have some harvest with you and also then continue on. Uh, some people say that what he wants to do is go further west and go on to Spain. And that is what the apostles do. They, they go to a place, they, they're his witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then they, they keep going on. They conquer and conquer further out. Um, and of course, it's now and not yet stuff. So that their conquering is not complete. Like, you know, the Apostle Paul plants these churches, but how big were those churches? Um, the, the apostles, the other apostles, go out and they begin the work, um, but certainly the church continues to grow and to expand, and the church that we see now is much, you know, numerically much larger and geographically much far, far spread than it was in the early days. All right, so we've got the first horse, a white horse. The rider is conquering, comes to conquer. We're going to keep looking at that horseman and the other ones on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor David Appled this morning about Revelation 6. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, May 24th. We're studying Revelation 6, verses 1 to 8 with Pastor David Appold. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, prior to the break, we were talking about the first horseman, the one who rides a white horse. The rider has a bow. He's got a crown. He's conquering. Talk a little bit about the color. He's riding a white horse. What might be the significance of that? Well, all of these, all four of the horsemen have a color associated with them, and and in the the scheme of revelation these colors are important um i i don't know that i have the authoritative uh understanding on the colors but one thing to to do with colors you can do a couple things with the symbolism of a color you can kind of do the um what we might call the generic the non-biblical interpretation so white what does white symbolize well white is pure and white is good and white is clean and and certainly the bible uses white this way right um your though your skin sins be as scarlet ye shall be white as snow okay so there that is not just a general thing that's a biblical thing um there's also a possibility and again this is just a suggestion for you tim and, and for our listeners um the colors of the gemstones in the high priest's breastplate um, correspond to different tribes of Israel. And if you look back um, at the end of Jacob's life and at the end of Moses's life, both of those patriarchs, well, Moses, probably prophet, not patriarch, but um, they describe the different tribes um, in different ways. And so I wonder if there's some kind of connection between the color here, the whiteness of the horse, and whatever the, the corresponding gemstone would be. Um, I, I don't know. Um, that's just one thought. If, if we went the other route, what we might say is that this conquering horse, um, he conquers, and this, this again maybe is a stretch, but this is what the book of Revelation invites you to do. Um, Luther talked about meditating on Scripture being like a, a horse chewing the cud or like a cow chewing the cud. So you have to chew on this a little bit. And it's not always immediately obvious, which is, um, I know that that's frustrating. For me, sometimes, I know it is for my members, like, well, but pastor, why isn't it just more obvious? Why, why, you know, why don't, it's, it's almost like we, we want everything in the Bible to be like, the, like it is in the catechism. You know, what does this mean? Here's what it means. And Revelation doesn't work that way. It works just the opposite. You get an image and you're not told what it means and you have to, it has to sit in your mind. It has to, you have to chew on it for a while. And then sometimes the, um, you know, oh, that's what, it, you know, some connection gets kind of formed there all of a sudden. And other times it's like years and years and you're reading different commentaries and they're all saying, you know, slightly different things. And you're just kind of throwing up your hands and saying, I really don't know why it's white and then green or white, red, black, green. You know, what, what's right. going on there? 
Right, right. Yeah. And we talked earlier about this this one being of the four, the one that has, I think, caused the most question. We've we've made the case, and you've made the case especially, for the writer being Christ, the horse even being the church. This is Christ going out with his gospel, being proclaimed in the world. For those that, that take this in a, a more negative direction, I've, I've seen it, and I, I'm sympathetic to this, that the, he's riding a white horse and kind of looks like Christ because he's, this is the Antichrist, the forces that, that pretend to be Christ, going out, seeming to conquer, having seeming power. That could be one way of taking it. And I, I find, I, and again, in things that I've read, when you look at the way Jesus speaks in Matthew 24 about the destruction of Jerusalem, which I think does seem to mirror things that happen throughout these last times. Yeah. He talks about the appearance of false Christs. That's another way that I've seen that I, again, I, I could see that being the case for this first horse. I'm sure I'm not going to convince you of that. but Well, it's, it's interesting because we're saying kind of polar opposite things. You know, is this, <laughs> uh, is this a false Christ or is it... Now, I, I would just clarify... Um, I think Christ is the ascended one, right? The lamb is on the throne. And so the rider, of course, I, I don't want to separate these two, but I would, I would say it a little bit different. Um, the rider is the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, again, it's kind of like Jesus speaking to his apostles on, in, the, in the gospel of John, right? I go to the Father and I come to you. Well, how can that, how's that going to happen, Jesus? Because I'm sending you the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, Jesus is, you have this great, um, the technical, the dogmatic term is perichoresis, right? You have this mutual indwelling where it's a package deal. Uh, if you don't like perichoresis, you can just say package deal, um, that the Spirit of Jesus and Jesus himself, are to, they are together. Um, and so at the end of Mark's gospel, you get this really clearly. Um, the apostles go out and the Lord Jesus was working with them. Um, as they went out. So just a, a slight distinction there. Um, but the, as far as the colors go, then y- you might apply these things to the actual church, that the color, the color and the symbolism of the color tells you something about the work of the church. So taking the white here, um, the church does go through the world to cleanse. The church does go through the world to remove sin. And, you know, I don't want to be uh, totally contradictory to you, Tim. After all, you're the host. I'm your guest. Um, <laughs> it is possible that that would be something that a false messiah would want to give the appearance of, right? That um, that these false Christs, these false churches would say, hey, we, we know of a better cleansing or we know of a different cleansing. If you come with us, then you'll find real relief. You'll find real rest from your sins. That's right. Yeah, and I and I appreciate you you bringing out a perspective that I honestly have not heard before. It's it's one of the wonderful things about sharper iron is the ability to listen to pastors who know more about these things than I do, or or have been taught different things about these things. Not that they're contradictory, but with a book like Revelation, as you said, there's so much Old Testament background that. I mean, I don't know it as well as I should, and so it's helpful to hear other people tell me, hey, this is something that maybe we should keep in mind as we read this. So I think it's it's helpful to hear, again, a, a more positive view of these four horsemen than what I have typically heard and taught myself, that we're seeing here the ways that in this world, up all the way through Jesus' ascension to the end, 
all the various ways that troubles come, that's the way I've typically taken it. So I'm, I appreciate hearing this perspective. I just want to put both of those out there so that, you know, when, when, the, when our listeners, they, they're like, well, Pastor Apple said this, and, and my pastor didn't say that. And these are, these are places where I think we can faithfully disagree on, on what yep. this means. He, this, so now I'll say, um, we'll get to the other horses, which are stranger. Uh, the, <laughs> I think in your trouble, interpretation, yeah. yeah the, the trouble comes because of the gospel, right? And this is, uh, think of Jesus saying that some of the hardest things that he says are things like, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So where the conqueror goes, what happens? Well, some are brought into his kingdom and come in, convert, repent, rejoice, you know, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, and that day 3,000 souls are added, and others resist. And so right on the heels of the white horse, now you get the red horse, and instead of bringing, uh, you know, wonderful, peaceful things, there's division. So the the mission of the church, under my view here, um, the, the gospel brings this division, the gospel does kind of shake things down. And so like, like you mentioned a few times here, Tim, these horses are not all like obviously positive connotations, right? Oh yes, I can't wait for the horse of division to ride into the world. I can't wait for the horse of, you know, death to come. But where the gospel goes, you do see these things. And this is why I especially like to draw the connections to that apostolic time that was in John's current day, in John's future. For us, it seems like, you know, that was 2,000 years ago. That was a long time ago. How can that be what Revelation is about? Well, because Revelation is written in the first century, um, and these things are fresh in their minds. They're, they're beginning to experience them. And this is uh, why I started, you know, being much more curious. I think all of us did in 2020. Those things that were very fresh in the apostolic age we're starting to see a lot of that in our own time, too, right? And so this, the gospel does bring um, division, which is the next horse, right? Um, this bright red horse takes peace from the earth. And, uh, okay, how can that be a good thing? Well, not all peace is, is true peace, right? And the, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, uh, was, was not the same thing as the peace of, the peace of Christ, Right. So I think, and here's, if I can make this point, that the, the way that you're, you're describing the red horse as this is the division that comes about because of the preaching of the gospel, what you're saying about the division coming about from the preaching of the gospel, that is biblical, and that is true. You brought up the text from, is it Matthew 12, Luke 12, I, I forget, in the gospels where Jesus speaks that way. I think it's Luke 12, where Jesus says, I came to bring division not mm -hmm. peace. So that's that's a very biblical thing of, of saying that. The question that we're, I think, disagreeing on, or at least I would probably disagree on, is whether or not Revelation 6 verses 3 and 4 says that same thing. But I, I mean, we both agree that, yes, the division comes when the gospel is preached. Is that what the Red Horse is, is talking about? That's where I'm not so sure. Yeah. Do you want me to do the next horse, too? Sure, keep going. Take okay. us... Yeah, so, so yeah, well, the, the next third, horse is black. Yep, the next horse is black, and this one is even, uh, I don't know, what's worse than people killing each other, slaying each other, persecuting each other? With um, the famine next, on, right? On account of the gospel. Yeah, sometimes this one's called the famine horse. 
um, because there is this, um, he proclaims, right, that the price for wheat and the price for barley, um, you know, is at this alarmingly high rate. Okay, so when people are um, attacking each other, one of the, when there's war, when peace is removed, there's economic fallout then too. And um, now it's interesting, there's a famine on, or there's a run on, I guess we could say, wheat and barley. But notice what is, what is not, there's, there's something that's preserved, which is wine and oil. Do not harm the oil and the wine. So this horse, and if, if we're taking this as the church, the church preserves the oil and the wine and the wheat and the barley are done away with, okay? Now, what's going on here? Well, here's, what I, here's how I take it, Tim. Um, as the church goes through the world, um, the old things, the former things, must pass away. That includes the temple. That includes the whole Jerusalem system. That includes um, you go beyond Jerusalem as the mission goes, all of the pagan idolatries, all of those former things have to pass away. And what is preserved then are the new things, um, the things of the church and the oil and the wine here, I, I would take as, you know, um, sacramental symbols, okay? Now, just think of the difference. Wheat and barley are kind of raw materials. Wine and oil, you've got to do a little bit of something. You have to refine them. You don't just get wine um, bubbling up out of the ground. You don't just get oil dripping off of a tree. So those are the, um, this is maybe a stretch, maybe I'm, I'm leapfrogging things here, but we don't have all the time in the world. Those are things of the new age. Those are things, those are the end things. Those are the final things. And the former things are the things that just grow up out of the ground, the wheat, the barley. The former things are passing away. They cost, you know, the cost is through the roof. You can't get them anymore. So if you want to live through this, you got to come to the new things. You got to come into the church. It's time to leave Jerusalem. It's time to leave Apollo and Zeus and all of those old things and come under the reign of Jesus. All right. So let's let's just since we're kind of on a roll then, let's just yep. kind of keep going with that. So so far we've got again the, the Holy Spirit has come through in and he's being proclaimed, the word is being proclaimed through the church that's brought division. You need to come out of the old things and into the new, because the old is coming to an end. The new is mm -hmm. what will remain. Yeah. Then the fourth seal, the fourth creature, or the fourth horse, it's it's translated pale in many translations, but as you already said, it's it's green. It's the it's the the Greek word is related to like chlorophyll, which is a you know it's kind of a pale green. It's the color of death, which is the name of the rider here, that's specified for us. And and of all of them, this is where I think the fact that the name is given as death is where I'm having a, especially a hard time with the way that you're taking it. But, but tell us how to take this one. Yes, this is... Um <laughs> I was going to say, isn't it obvious? <laughs> but, uh, but I'm obviously <laughs> being sarcastic. This is... Uh, this is the final outcome of what happens when you reject the gospel. So what happens when the white horse passes in, the gospel is proclaimed, there's division, there's famine, the former things pass away, the new things are preserved. But what happens if you want to stay in the old world? What happens if you want to hold on to the former things? Um, well, 
this is what happens. There's judgment. And this is where, yes, again, I, I understand the, um, oh, pastor, how could, how could if, if what you're saying is right, if the Holy Spirit is the rider seated upon the horses and the horse is the church, how could, the, how could we call the Holy Spirit death? And how could Hades follow him? Um, and this is certainly not the normal way that we think about the, the work of the Spirit. After all, what do we say in the Creed? He is the Lord and giver of life, right? Um, but it's also a biblical theme uh, that when the Spirit is rejected, um, there, is, there is no life. There is only death. And so the final stroke, um, the final kind of thing that comes to those who resist the Spirit um, is death and Hades. So uh, I might have to uh, pull things in like, well, we say sometimes this is not the proper work of the Spirit, it's the alien work. This is not the, um, the work of the gospel, but it's the work of the law um, to bring to death. And then the final, um, you know, the final thing is to hand people over to, uh, to their perdition uh, who refuse the Spirit. Mm. Well, as, uh, again, as, as I was reflecting on the way that you're taking this, and it is, I do think it is, it, it's an unusual way of speaking, if that is the case. But I was reminded of Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says, you know, don't fear the one who can kill the body, fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. And I don't remember when I realized this, but I, I know growing up, I, I assumed that that was, yeah. that was the devil. Right. But in reality, no, the one who, who throws into hell is actually, that's the Lord. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's at least maybe another place to consider. And again, I'm, I, I don't know that I, I agree with that way of taking it here. I, I, I still tend to fall on the other side a little bit more. But that's another place, I think, to consider that, well, maybe, maybe we should give some credence, at least to what, what you're saying about the possibility. Hey, I, I've done something today. Um, Maybe. I, I didn't think I could convince you of this, but um, I, I think you're right on. I mean, I, I remember that exact passage, like as a kid, thinking, oh, he's talking about the devil. And just like you're saying, I, it, it's not how we often picture Jesus, but he is the judge. Um, he, is, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so, yes, he is not—we we would not typically associate Jesus or his spirit with death and Hades, but— Remember what John saw back at the beginning here. Behold, I am he who died and rose again, and I hold in my hand the key to death and Hades, right? Those things are his. Um, the Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. And this is, again, to tie it in with um, the church, the mission of the church is um, does bring people under the reign of Jesus, and also sometimes the, the enemies, those who oppose him, they are hardened, right? That um, when the gospel is preached, there are two things that happen. Either a person is converted or there is this hardening. And that is not a plot. That's not something that we like to spend time pondering because it's not what we want to happen, right? Uh, but it does happen. And you can see in the, the age of the apostles, you do see both of these things. Like think of, think of the apostle Paul going out everywhere he goes. Um, he goes into the synagogues and he preaches the gospel, and some are gathered to him, and some at first say things like, oh, we're not so sure about this. Could you come back and speak again next week? And he does, and he stays in the synagogues until they drive him out. And then once they drive him out, they're not even just satisfied with driving him out. They follow him from place to place, and they keep trying to, to, 
destroy him. They keep trying to, to prevent him from doing what he wants to do. And so I think, um, you know, eventually what has to happen is for the sake of the kingdom of, of Jesus to continue to grow, um, you know, Jerusalem has to fall. The temple must be destroyed. And it, and it was destroyed in 70. And that kind of served as a springboard then for the, um, the apostles to go out at least unhindered by, um, you know, by the synagogue. Now, that just ushered in, there was a new phase of persecution because then it's pre predominantly the Romans, right, that the, the gospel goes into the Roman world. And we know that the Romans weren't exactly keen on saying, hey, we, we'd all like to be Christians, please, <laughs> you know, upheave our society too. Um, but, the, but we do see that, that, that one of the things that the church does is that it, it causes um, upheavals. The, think of Demetrius, the silversmith, saying, you're turning the world upside down. And of course, the, the gospel brings in a new world and the church does bring stability and civilization is, does come when, when God's word works through a culture. There is a lot of progress that comes um, to both kingdoms, the kingdom of the right and the kingdom of the left. But at first, that, that comes with a shakeup of, of how things currently were. So I, I know the way that you're you're reading this is is very historical in the sense of these are things that again follow right on the heels of Jesus' ascension, Pentecost. That's the way we've been reading it, and I, I'm right with you that we want to avoid newspaper exegesis. I do think that you can read these four horsemen in ways that describe the earthly tyranny, the earthly warfare, the famine, the death that we see, and I do think that you can read those things faithfully without doing newspaper exegesis, yeah. such that, as you, you brought up the example of Ukraine, when we see something like that happen, we recognize that this is what the Lord told us would happen in this time before his return without trying to attach some sort of specific sp significance to it. So I, I think you can do that. H having said all that, to your historical reading of it, how then do we as the Church today take this and read this if, if this is just primarily things that happened right after Jesus' yeah. ascension. Yeah, I think that the um, it's like microcosm, macrocosm kind of stuff. What I mean by that is it's, it's similar to the way that we read the Old Testament, um, that we, we see here that um, there are types and there are patterns that are repeated throughout history because the Lord, the same Lord uh, who brought Israel out of the Exodus is the one who... Um, was crucified, died, and was buried, and rose again. Um, he's the same Lord who sent the apostles out, who sent his spirit. And so you, you see the um, his works repeat. There, there really is a—time is cyclical. It, is, it spirals. Um, and so these same things continue to happen. You can see what, what happens when the gospel of Jesus comes to a new place. You know, what, what happened after— um, you know, the initial apostolic age? What happened with the, the post-apostolic age? How did the gospel advance? What kind of things, what was the responses to the gospel? And then, you know, applying it to our times, what should we expect? You know, if, if this is the proper reading here, and that the church is the, the horses, and the spirit is the horsemen, and we're going out through the, into the world, into our world, and we're proclaiming the gospel, um, should we expect just you know, constant good 
positive responses? Will there be persecution? Will there be, um, you know, a passing away of former things and the, the coming in of the of the church? Um, and, you know, this is only four out of the seven seals, so we're, we're right. kind of stopping off in the middle here. Um, and you, you, it's, there is something very, um, a positive progression in what I'm saying here um, that that isn't always the way that the church goes. Um, and you're going to see that, that there is, it's not just a constant, um, you know, we're just always increasing. And Jesus's kingdom is, is constantly going forward. Um, the Lord traces his cross over his church in all times and places. So there is going to be persecution. There's going to be, excuse me, sufferings and setbacks that come to us along the way. Um, but there is also the mission that we keep going out. We, we don't rest. We don't stop. Yeah, we and we keep doing that because of the confidence, and maybe this is a good place to end. We, we keep doing that, regardless of how you take these particular horsemen, we do that because of the victory of Christ and his church, which is what the book of Revelation is all about, that Christ has conquered. In him, we conquer as well. We heard that in the letters to the seven churches. They're written to yeah. the one who conquers. Yep. I mean, so regardless of how you take it, that that is the the overarching message, and this does fit into that one way or another. Yeah, I, and I would just say, um, what comes next? So you, you get okay. The horsemen are going out into the whole world, or the horses are, and um, and now the martyrs get really excited. Like, Lord, is not now are we going to be vindicated? And then they're told, no, you got to wait a little while longer until the rest of the the martyrs can be sealed. Um, so again, that's what I mean. There there are these. Um, advances and then pauses and then advances and then setbacks. And I think it's helpful to, to see, even if we're not supposed to like identify, aha, right? This is a, the Cold War. And I think that's wrong to do, to try to say the book of Revelation, John was seeing, you know, the helicopters of Vietnam. That, that's just one example. That's, that's somewhat common. Um, that's the dispensational error uh, that, that people pick up on because it's popular. And it's, in some ways, it's kind of exciting, right? right. Um, but what's even more exciting, I would propose to you, is seeing that the, the work of the church is actually central to the progress of history. The church is not an accident. The mission of the church is not a tangent from, like, real history. Um, you know, we don't have sacred history and real history. The engine that's driving everything is the Spirit of God and His mission in the world to gather the people of God and then to work through the people of God uh, in the world. That's the center, um, that's the, the driving force of everything. And the, the good news is that through many trials and tribulations, we will, um, we will conquer with Jesus. Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm your host on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the first four seals opened in Revelation 6, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.